Hi, and welcome to this week's LGBT Wellness Podcast. Each week, LGBT HealthLink, a program of Centerlink, brings you a roundup of some of the biggest LGBTQ wellness stories from the past week. Get ready to listen and learn lots. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another week of our LGBT Wellness Roundup. Don't forget that you can go to blog.lgbthealthlink.org if you want to read any of these stories yourself. Let's go to our first piece of the week. One in four LGBT youth are non-binary. Time reported on new research from the Trevor Project, released for International Non-Binary People's Day this month, finding that 26% of LGBT youth identify as non-binary, with another 20% questioning if they are non-binary. This presents non-binary identified people as a large and growing part of the LGBT population, which will likely only expand if the trend continues. About half of non-binary youth also identify as transgender, while the other half do not, indicating diversity in self-identity among this broad population. Next up, muscle dysmorphia among trans folks. Researchers led by Jason Nagata studied the presence of muscle dysmorphia, or the extreme pursuit of muscularity, among gender minority individuals. They found that trans men scored higher than trans women and non-binary folks in terms of showing symptoms of muscular dysmorphia, particularly driven by the factor uh, called the, quote, drive for size, in which individuals seek to be larger. Researchers said the results should help inform care for trans individuals. There's been a lot of interesting uh, research like this coming out lately, looking more at body image issues, which hopefully will help, um, you know, clinicians uh, and others be able to uh, help trans people just navigate all of these issues that that come with with a transition and with kind of, you know, societal expectations about gender expression and identity. Uh, So definitely interesting to see more of this research. In our next story... Conversion Therapy Brings Lasting Trauma Open Democracy published a report on survivors of so-called conversion therapy in which one's sexual orientation or gender identity is attempted to be changed through discredited practices. Now this, of course, unfortunately happens all over the world, but this particular report was looking at stories from individuals living in Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda. The abusive treatment that they received included receiving electric shocks, being drugged, facing isolation for a long period of time, and even being hormones, uh, being given hormones against their will, uh, basically to impose someone else's idea of, of how their gender expression should, should look. Survivors reported long-term effects on their mental health, relationships, and trust in the medical system, which is really important because it helps to explain how even after someone gets out of treatment like this, uh, quote-unquote treatment like this, uh, they, they're going to have these lasting effects because they, they're not going to trust the hospital, they're not going to trust doctors, they're not going to be able to go and get the care that they need, either following up from the trauma that they experienced or just general care. Uh, so it's definitely a very serious um, situation and something that's still legal in most parts of the world, including uh, you know much of the United States. Next up, new data standards include SOGI. HIV.gov announced that HHS has rolled out new data standards that will make it easier for providers to collect information relating to sexual orientation and gender identity, or what are known as SOGI factors, as well as questions regarding social determinants of health. 
Now, the latter are things like poverty and housing. They're not particularly applying to LGBT individuals here, but we know that these are things that LGBT people disproportionately are affected by. And if, if providers do start collecting both of these measures, that will mean that they'll be able to look and see any trends that appear for LGBT folks uh, with respect to these social determinants of health. So both pieces are, are really good news. Now, the update does not require this data to be collected, but it could encourage health systems to do so. It's giving them an easier means by which to do so, and it also means that the data could be easier to compare. That's a big problem with, uh, with SOGI questions in general, is that there's a lot of variation, and that can make it difficult to compare directly you know, one study to another or one data set to another. So having consistency here has been you know, a big goal of a lot of advocates and should come as good news. Our next story looks at finding an inclusive pediatrician. New York Times reported on how to find an LGBT-friendly pediatrician, which can be a challenge given limited resources to identify doctors with actual LGBT knowledge and experience. The article recommends turning to local LGBT youth and parent-serving organizations for tips and looking for signs of LGBT inclusion on the website or in the office of the pediatrician that they're considering. The article also discusses American Academy of Pediatrics guidance on quality care for LGBT youth, which was interesting and not something that, uh, that I remember reviewing, at least. Uh, and that includes um, encouraging providers to have visible signs of LGBT inclusion in their office. You know, it could be a flag or images or whatnot, um, as well as sharing uh, their pronouns with patients so that patients can feel comfortable doing so themselves. And in our final story of the week, life insurance is complicated for trans people. Money reported on the challenges facing transgender people in accessing life insurance, which can be complicated given the industry's heavy reliance on sex assigned at birth and making their coverage decisions. This is based on statistics that people who are assigned female at birth tend to have longer lifespans than people who are assigned male, so the life insurance companies you know, tend to look at that as an important factor in, in deciding about coverage. Adding to the complexity is that each company has its own policy, of course. Some do allow people to, uh, you know, apply with their gender identity, and others, um, frustratingly, force people to revert to their sex assigned at birth. So this can obviously be, um, you know, upsetting or irritating at the least for trans people, and traumatic at the, at the worst, especially, you know, if this interaction is happening in person, um, that can be particularly challenging and upsetting to have to, uh, you know, discuss those those personal details um, that, you know, frankly, other people don't really have any business knowing. Companies also typically won't write a new policy for someone who's about to undergo surgery. So that, that's another little added uh, complexity here is that if there are trans folks who are thinking about gender affirming surgery, they would have to wait to, uh, to get life insurance. Um, so definitely some complicated factors here. Something I haven't really thought about nearly as much as, as health insurance, which of course all of us have, you know, life insurance um, is something sought after by a smaller chunk of the population, but nevertheless something that's very helpful in, in kind of planning for your, the long-term, you know, well-being of, of your family and people you care about. And so um, an interesting story to read. Well, that concludes another week of our LGBT Wellness Roundup. Don't forget that you can go to blog.lgbthealthlink.org for a written version of the Roundup with all of the links that you will need. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you're not already so that you can tune in with us next week.